0: My voice is still recovering a little bit from some sinus stuff, so apologize about that. My name is uh, Ben. If you don't know me, I'm one of the pastors here, and uh, I'm super grateful and honored to get to learn with you this morning from the book of Proverbs. Um, so yeah, we're going to dive in. Uh, if, you, uh, if you're a visitor, again, we just want to say welcome. We're so glad that you're here. I also want to tell you, if anyone needs a copy of God's Word, like a physical copy, you'd like to hold it. Uh, if you just want to raise a hand... Our Ushers would be more than happy to bring you a copy uh, that you can use this morning. Of course, we're gonna be on the screen as well um, And most of you have phones, so whatever's most comfortable, but just raise the hand if you'd like this uh, and if you don't own a copy of God's Word uh, We'd love for you to just keep this one take it home with you uh, and read it so um, as uh, As most of you know, we've been in this series uh, We just saw it in the whole intro video uh, called life goals God's wisdom for living the good life. And this is kind of an interesting way to think about the book of Proverbs. Um, is that it's really, it's painting for us a picture of what the good life might look like. Now, when, when I hear that phrase, the good life, um, several different images and ideas kind of pop into my head. I don't know what maybe pops into your head uh, when you hear the good life. What does it mean to live the good life? I mean, the first thing that kind of pops in my head is a Kanye West song. Um, that I wouldn't necessarily encourage you to go listen to. Uh, but he's, he's definitely painting a picture of what he feels like uh, the good life is. And in his conception, it's kind of like, you know, money and girls and a nice car. And, you know, I got the shine, throw your hands up in the sky. Um, it's, it's similar to kind of like, but slightly different. It's similar to like when I think of like the Rat Pack. Uh, Or James Bond. I mean, there's this kind of conception that the good life is luxury and beautiful people. What's going on? All right. Luxury and beautiful people and fine food and fine dining. That's what the good life is. Maybe you don't relate to any of that. Maybe you relate more to like Tim McGraw who wrote, you know, I'm going to live where the green grass grows watch my corn pop up in rows and every night be tucked in close to you raise our kids where the good lord's blessed point our rocking chairs towards the west and plant our dreams where the peaceful river flows where the green grass grows and so maybe you maybe you kind of picture something more along those lines when you think of the phrase the good life or maybe Maybe that's not neither one of those is you at all. I, I was thinking about what are all these examples? Because depending on where you're raised or who your family is or where you grew up, you, you have a different conception maybe of what it means to live the good life. So I like I watch a lot of YouTube lately. Um, it's kind of all I watch other than sports. It's like sports and YouTube. And I watch a lot of like vloggers, people vlogging their life. And I follow these van lifers. Anybody seen van lifers? They tend to be millennials, not completely, uh, but tends to be young People And they, they get a Sprinter van and they convert it into kind of like a mini RV and it's their home. A lot of them don't have a home other than that. But they'll travel all over the U.S. or even different parts of the world living out of this van. And they're prioritizing experiences over stuff, oftentimes. They tend to be minimalistic, oftentimes environmental and, and you get the feeling that if you're watching these people and you watch them a lot, like that's their conception of the good life. That's what it means to live a good life in their mind. So they may be at a different place than you or Tim McGraw or Kanye, but we all have these ideas. What does it mean to live life well? Well, Proverbs is actually seeking to paint for us a picture of what it means to live with God's wisdom and to live our lives well. And so you guys know over the last several weeks as we. Week, gone through this book, we're hitting different topics. You kind of have to preach Proverbs differently um, because it'll just kind of like, it feels like it's all over the place, a little ADD, Uh, you know, but it it will tell us things about money and it will tell us things about sex and relationships and friendship and uh, goal setting. And it's very much trying to paint a picture of this is what it means to live a life well. This is what it means to live the good life. This is what it means to live a life under God's wisdom as a, in, their, in their, you know, when it was originally written as a covenant member of the community of faith of Israel and then for us as a follower of Jesus. This is God's wisdom for how to live our lives well. And so today we're at a new subject in the book of Proverbs and we're actually gonna be talking about the subject of justice. What does Proverbs teach us about justice and and how is justice incorporated into lives that are lived well for god so i want to we're actually going to skim through a bunch of passages here at the front end. i just want to kind of give you a picture of where all this is mentioned then we're going to talk about what it means and kind of how it applies to our lives. so that's that's where we're going before we read the scripture pray with me real quick let's ask god to help us father we're gathered worship you this morning we're gathered because you're a heavenly father and we believe jesus loves us and has died for us we believe that changes everything and so i pray lord as your people that you would help us to follow after you well holy spirit i pray that you would move in these moments as we reflect on your scriptures we think about what you're teaching us and lord i pray that you would just say to us Whatever it is that you want to say, Uh, Lord, all of us in different situations and mind frames this morning, not all of us in the same situation. And so, Lord, we might need to hear different things. And and in a very mysterious, wonderful way, when your word is studied and preached, you speak to us different things, exactly what we need to hear. And so, Lord, I pray for anybody who's here or even watching online or who might even listen to this and watch this at a later date. Lord, speak to our hearts, whatever it is that we need to hear Lord, help us to interact with you. We'll pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so right at the very beginning, Proverbs 1, 1 through 3, this is when Solomon, who wrote most of this, not all of this, is kind of laying out the purpose of these Proverbs. And he says, the Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel, to know wisdom and instruction, to understand words of insight, to receive instructions in wise Dealing in righteousness, that's a word that can also be translated justice, and justice and equity. So right at the very beginning, part of the purpose of Proverbs is that we would know what justice is and be people that fight for justice, that live for justice, that do justice. Okay? Proverbs 2, 1 through 9, next chapter. And and remember, Proverbs, much of it is written from the point of view of a father teaching a son, this is how you ought to live. You get that in chapter 2 here my son if you receive my words and Treasure up my commandments with you making your ear attentive to wisdom and inclining your heart to understanding Yes If you call out for insight and raise your voice for understanding if you seek it like silver and search for it As for hidden treasures for the Lord gives wisdom from his mouth come knowledge and understanding He stores up sound wisdom for the upright. He's a shield to those who walk in integrity This is what the Lord does, verse 8, guarding the paths of justice and watching over the way of his saints. He says that's what the Lord does, and he says, verse 9, then you, son, then you also will understand righteousness and justice and equity every good path. So he says if you follow after the ways of the Lord, who is just and has righteousness, son, then you'll begin to put on justice and righteousness as well. You need to do that. Proverbs 8:8. 8, 8. All the words of my mouth, this is the Lord speaking, are righteous. That word, again, righteous, could be translated justice. All the words of my mouth are righteous. There's nothing twisted or crooked in them. The Lord always does what is good. A little further down in that chapter, verses 15 and 16. By me, kings reign and rulers decree what is just. By me, princes rule and nobles, all who govern justly. So with the Lord is a life of justice. If you're leading something or ruling something, whether it be a household or an organization or a school, the way to do that in a righteous and just way is to do it with the Lord. Proverbs 8.20. I, this is wisdom speaking. I, wisdom, walk in the way of righteousness in the paths of justice. There's a lot. There's like 30 some odd thing. We're not going through 30, by the way. But there's a lot. You go to chapter 17, verse 23. It says, The wicked accepts a bribe in secret to pervert the ways of justice. That's what the wicked do. The opposite of who we want to be. Proverbs 21.3 To do righteousness and justice is more acceptable to the Lord than sacrifice. That's a big one. God says to Israel, I am more concerned that you would walk in integrity with righteousness and with justice than I am concerned that you would come to the tabernacle or the temple, and offer a sacrifice. Translated towards today, 24, I am more concerned that you would walk in ways of righteousness and be people of justice than I am concerned that you would show up on a Sunday morning and sing songs to me. God's very concerned with ways of justice. Proverbs 29, 4, by justice a king builds up the land but he who exacts gifts tears it down and the last one I'll share with you today proverbs 31 so this is right before the proverbs 31 woman the beginning of the chapter this is interesting it's about a guy called named king lemuel and it says these are the words of king lemuel an oracle that his mother taught him so his mom taught him this it says what are you doing my son What are you doing, son of my womb? What are you doing, son of my mouth? And he he says, don't do these things. Don't give your strength to women, your ways to those who destroy kings. It's not for kings, O Lemuel. It's not for kings to drink wine or for rulers to take strong drink. Why? Lest they drink and forget what has been decreed and pervert the rights of all the afflicted. Give strong drink to the one who is perishing and wine to those in bitter distress. Let them drink and forget their poverty and remember their misery no more. Open your mouth, King Lemuel, for the mute, for the rights of all who are destitute. Open your mouth and judge righteously. Defend the rights of the poor and needy. She says, she says essentially to her son, Lemuel, you're in a specific situation where you've been given authority and, and a lot of things, and it would be very easy for you in this situation where you have a lot of, of rights, and you have a lot of power to just spend all your time on sleeping around with many women, to be continually drunken, and I want to urge you, son, don't spend your life that way. That's not for you in this position of authority, to be sleeping around and to be constantly drunk. Because if you do that, you will likely pervert justice. You will likely quit forgetting about, you will likely forget about the rights of the poor and needy. You will likely give preference to your friends and to other people that can help you out rather than looking out for the people who really need it, who no one's looking out for if you don't look out for them. Just a sampling some of what proverbs tells us about the theme of justice if you do a deep dive you'll see that I think I counted 34 times that's mentioned just in this book these ideas but it's actually a couple Hebrew words that's what I want to move on to you now and I want to just tease out a couple different ideas that the Bible's actually trying to teach us about this the first so there's two or three words we're gonna talk about two of them that can be translated justice from the hebrew old testament the first hebrew word is the word mishpat okay and here's i'm going to read you a couple definitions here's what mishpat is usually translated justice mishpat according to the lexan bible dictionary is divinely righteous action whether taken up by humanity or god that promotes equality among humanity it's used in relation to Uplifting the righteous and oppressed and debasing the unrighteous and oppressors. Tim Keller adds some more help here. He's got a wonderful book, by the way, that I used a lot in preparation for this message, and I would just commend it to you called Generous Justice. We don't have it out there, but you can find it on Amazon. It's wonderful. If this interests you, you want a deep dive, go grab that book. But here's what he says in Generous Justice He says, the word mishpat in its various forms, occurs more than than 200 times in the Hebrew Old Testament. And its most basic meaning is to treat people equitably. Mishpat means acquitting or punishing every person on the merits of the case, regardless of race or social status. Anyone who does the same wrong should be given the same penalty. But Mishpat means more than just the punishment of wrongdoing. It also means to give people their rights mishpat then is giving people what they are due whether punishment or protection or care over and over again mishpat describes taking up the care and the cause of widows and orphans and immigrants and the poor and those who have been called the quartet of the vulnerable and then he goes on and he says today this quartet would be expanded to include the refugee Refugee the migrant worker the homeless and many single parents and elderly people We could probably add to that The mishpat or the justice the justness of a society according to the Bible is evaluated by how it treats these groups Any neglect shown to the needs of the members of this quartet is not called merely a lack of mercy or charity but a violation of justice God loves and defends those with the least economic and social power and so should we. This is what it means to do justice. Y'all trekking with me? That's mishpat. The other word was a little harder to say, so forgive me if I say it wrong, but I think it's pronounced sadik. okay? And, and And in the verses we read, we were reading both, Mishpat and Sadiq, you know, they were righteousness. This one's the one that's often translated righteousness, okay? Tim Keller again. We get more insight when we consider a second Hebrew word that can be translated as being just, though it usually is translated as being righteous. The word tazik, and it refers to a life of right relationships. So this one has to do with relationships, okay? Being just in relationships. And he says this when most modern people see the word righteousness in the Bible. I think this too. I don't think of justice when I hear the word righteousness. Keller says we tend to think in terms of private morality, right, uh, or or sexual chastity, or something along those lines. But the Bible, but in the Bible, tzik represents the day to day living in which a person conducts all relationships in family and society with fairness generosity, and equity. Okay, so then he says this, bringing the two words together. These two words roughly correspond to what some have called primary and rectifying justice. Rectifying justice is mishpat. Something goes wrong, we need to show some mishpat. We need to make things right. Some injustice is being done, and we as God's people are called to to bring justice. Okay, but that would not be needed if we had lives of tazik. If we were already showing justice in our relationships at a social dimension, if we're already walking after the ways of God, then there would be less injustice that we would have to set right. And So they kind of work together. Okay, so we've done our deep dive. Let me give you some illustrations about how this might apply. Um, The first, and something that I've talked about here before, is this idea of the imago Dei. The image of God. So it says in Genesis, right at the very beginning of the Bible, and God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them male and female, he created them. So man there most mainly refers to mankind. God created Adam specifically but all of mankind in his image and then he clarifies male and female he created them in his image. What the Bible's teaching us is that every single person on the planet has been created in the image of God. So everybody here you you in some mysterious way image forth God's likeness. Okay. And therefore, every single person has intrinsic beauty and dignity and worth. So maybe you don't feel very good about yourself today. Let that wash over you. You have worth. You have value. You have dignity. Why? One of the big reasons why is because you've been created in God's image. Also, every single person on the planet has been created in God's image and has dignity and worth and is deserving of justice. So, something that had never really hit me before until I was recently studying it. Um, I'm in school and I was writing a paper and thinking about some of these themes is the fact that, you know, Moses, he, God rescues the people of Israel from. Egypt right and they go out they're supposed to go to the promised land it takes them a while to get there But they go into the desert and they're wandering and it's there that God gives Moses the Ten Commandments And there may have been some oral tradition But ultimately Moses probably wrote those five books of the first five books of the Old Testament Genesis Exodus Leviticus numbers Deuteronomy. He wrote those and he probably wrote them during those wilderness wanderings. So all these words, and a lot of it predates Moses, but God's telling Moses what happened. There's some oral tradition, and Moses, with the help of the Holy Spirit, is writing down the words of God that we have. So when, they, when this was first written down, this Genesis 1, it's being written down by Moses from the Holy Spirit right after they just left a place where they had been enslaved, Right? children of Israel, and where they had been treated as less than human. Where the Israelites were in a place in Egypt where the the Egyptian pharaoh looked around and he goes, I don't like these people that look different than us. I don't like these people that watch animals. We're Egyptians. Remember, Joseph couldn't even eat with his brothers when they first visited because it was an abomination for Egyptians to eat with, with shepherds, basically. And so they said, you guys go live in the land of Goshen away from us in Egypt. There was some Racial tension, ethnic tension, some sort of tension, cultural tension there. And ultimately, when the next Pharaoh rose up, who didn't know Joseph and his family, he looked on Israel and he said, these people are not as good as us. And so he began to treat them as subhuman and enslave them. And the children of Israel were enslaved in Egypt and they were treated as a commodity. And God rescues them from Egypt, leads them out into the desert, gives them the law, and he says, this is not how it's going to work in my country. In Israel, and really the truth of the matter is, is that I have created everyone in, on this planet in my image, and you are to treat them with kindness and justice and equity. You're to do right by them. They're all created in my beautiful image. And this is why if you research the Old Testament, you see there was all kinds of weird laws that don't completely make sense to us, but a lot of them are laws of justice and equity where God's saying, if someone sojourns through your land, you don't mistreat that person. You were sojourners in Egypt, so now when people come through your land and they're not from there, you treat them right. If people enter into slavery and it was more like indentured servitude in Israel, he says, if they enter into that situation, here are the rules to govern how that's going to work in Israel. You have to eventually free them. In fact, you're going to send them out with gifts. And they're not, they're not, this is not like American chattel slavery where people were kidnapped and enforced in slavery. God says, no, 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 that's not how, (laughs) that's wrong. He says, this is an indentured servitude situation and I have rules to govern it so that it's done justly and equitably. This is why there was a year of Jubilee. Have you guys ever heard about this in Scripture? Every every seven years, there was a Sabbath year, but eventually on like the 49th, really the 50th year, there was a year of Jubilee and, and debts would be forgiven. Land would be given back. God's saying, I want there to be equality in my land. I want people to be treated fairly in this land. This is my way. This is who I am. Now, exactly how all that translates to us now, that's where it gets complicated, right? But that got, that's God's heart. I want to give you another example. This is from a guy named Harvey Kahn, who um, was a professor. I think he's with Jesus now. Um, he may not be, but he's, he's old if he's not. Um, but uh, he was a professor. He was also a missionary in Korea for several years. And he tells his story. He says, uh, He says, over seven years of my 12 in Korea as a foreign missionary uh, were spent doing evangelistic work with prostitutes. He says, my initiation into that ministry came simply because of the large number of prostitutes and because I thought that they were rather clearly sinners. I saw them as in rebellion against God and needing repentance. And I went calling them to faith. And I defined their needs in terms of how I had seen the needs and uh, a north american pastor so he says, he said i had a very american idea of this situation when i entered in he says but listen further he says the fruits of my initial encounters were very few young women listened but they never left prostitution no one changed the breakthrough came when one person began to change he says i changed as i worked with the women i gathered more information about the system of which they were a part i learned that many of them had entered prostitution because it was often the only work they could find in an Asian male-dominated culture. The war had destroyed their links with the extended family system. This is not too long after the war in Korea when he's writing this. This is, and they were often the senior breadwinners. There were brothers and sisters to take care of back home, and frequently the young women came from rural homes looking for quick money in the big city. Personal problems at home or a bad economic year sent them looking for a better way. They were met at the trains. So they're coming from the rural areas into the cities in Korea. They're met at the trains by the pimps who offered them a place to stay for the night. And then when they got there, they were raped. And when they got ready to leave, they were informed that they had to pay for room and board. They couldn't and found prostitution the only way to pay their debts. After a few weeks of this, their debt was paid by another brothel owner who moved them then further away. And they had become slaves of a system from which they could never break free. Their debts were always higher than their ability to pay. They found themselves imprisoned and oppressed, their humanity buried in guilt and shame. And he says, as I learned that story, as I realized what was going on, he says, my attitude began to change. I started... I started... What's going on here? I started suspecting my own early motivations. Was it sin that I had really seen in these women? Or was it the violation of middle-class morality? At this stage, my early sympathies seemed more like cultural morality. I became compassionate. What is the difference? He said, I discovered that a person is not only a sinner, he or she is also sinned against. My cultural background in white North American churches had oriented me almost... Thank you. He says... Wow, that's different. Uh, my cultural background in white North American churches has oriented me almost exclusively to seeing a person as the subject of sin, but never the object of sin. Seeking the various factors that kept women in prostitution opened my eyes to that new dimension. Now, he's, he's saying all this in the context of saying that along with our evangelism must be justice. And in fact, in some, in some situations we won't really be able to evangelize without first doing the work of justice. How can these women turn from the lifestyle this clearly sinful lifestyle that they're in if nothing is done to help break that cycle? Here's the third example. This one's another one from scripture. We, we came across this example when we were going through the story of, of Ruth, right? Remember Ruth, she was a very poor woman, okay? And her She's a widow. She's with her mother in law and moved back to Israel. They had left because of a famine in the land. Now they moved back and they don't have anything. And her, her mother in law says, Ruth, I want you to go out and sow in the fields. And that's an interesting idea. But here's where it comes from In Leviticus 19, I think it'll be on the screen, it says, This is what God had told Israel. When you reap, so if you're a landowner in Israel, when you reap the harvest of your land, You shall not reap your field right to its edge. Neither shall you gather the cleanings after your harvest. And you shall not strip your vineyard bare. Neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. So he says, here's what I want you to do. Yes, reap your fields, but at the very edges, leave some. And if some falls out of your hand, just leave it. And as you gather the grapes from the vine of your vineyard, you know, it's okay if some fall to the ground. You don't have to pick up every one because I in Israel want you, Israel, to intentionally leave some of that so that the poor can come in and they can eat. They can be nursed. So Ruth is going and gleaning in Boaz's field because God had set up a system to look out for the poor and the needy in the land. God was concerned again with justice and how he set up Israel. Now, again, how do these apply to our North American context? There's a couple key insights from that one. One, I love the idea, and I don't know how to make this happen in our culture, right? So let's put our brains together and ask the Holy Spirit to help us. But I love that there was both mercy from those that had, and it was not just a handout. There was some work required on the part of those who needed the food they had to come and reap. You know, we got to, there's a ditch that says all mercy, no work, or... Or you got to work for everything you got is the ditch on the other side. And we're called to somehow balance those as God's followers. We're all called to work, unless we're in a situation where we can't. But we're also called to show mercy and compassion to those who have fallen on bad luck or maybe have a completely different upbringing than us. Okay? Here's the other insight. I heard Jeff Vanderstelt say about this teaching years ago, that maybe one of the ways that this applies to us in our context is that when we're making our 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 personal budgets, that we leave some room to reap the edges. In other words, I'm not going to max out my budget for everything that I want to accomplish all my goals so that every last cent is accounted for to spend on me. But I'm going to leave room in my budget for situations that God might bring into my path Where some justice or some mercy is needed. And I'm going to have the resources freed up and prepared to be able to step into that situation and to show mercy and love because I've been shown mercy and love. I love that idea. It's one I need to think through personally more seriously. So, how does all this sum up? Well, a couple things with the gospel and summing up all, because it it probably feels like we're kind of all over the place, man. Where are we going? Well, Romans 5, 8, or 5, 6 through 8 says, while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And, and Tim Keller says this, he says, I've often found that the people that, sh- that, that work for justice, the people that show mercy the most are those are the ones that have the gospels most radically sunk into their lives. And they've, they've realized they've been shown tremendous grace. Like I'm a sinner in need of a savior and God could have just left me how I was left me in my sin, not rescued me. But Jesus came and he rescued me. He lived the life I couldn't live. He died the death I deserve to die. He rose again to give a resurrection life. And I've been radically changed, not by any goodness in me, not because I've done anything, not because I deserved it, was born into the right family or born on the right side of the tracks. God just loved me and died for me and offers me the free gift of the grace of the gospel. And so I am more sinful than I imagine or really understand. But I am also more radically loved than I could ever imagine in Jesus. And when that hits you, God begins to work on your heart to be a heart that wants to show grace and mercy and justice to others. So Keller tells this work, he says, he says, to my surprise, there's a direct relationship between a person's grasp an experience of God's grace and his or her heart for justice and the poor. In both settings, as I preached the classic message, he's talking about both settings, New York and Virginia and the rural, rural Virginia, which is where the two places Tim Keller ministered. He says, in both places, as I preached the classic message that God does not give us justice, but saves us by free grace, I discovered that those most affected by the message became the most sensitive to the social inequities around them. One man in my church in Hopewell, a guy named Easley Shelton, went through a profound transformation. He moved out of a sterile, moralistic understanding of life and began to understand that his salvation was based on free, unmerited grace of Jesus. It gave him a new warmth, joy, and confidence that everyone could see, but it had another surprising effect. You know, he said to me one day, I've been a racist all my life. And Tim says, I was startled because I had not yet preached to him or to the congregation on that subject. He's like, I'd just been there not that long. I'd not preached on racism yet. And here's a man confessing his racism. But he said, he easily had put it together for himself. When he lost his Phariseeism, his spiritual self righteousness, he said he lost his racism. If we will let the gospel sink profoundly into our hearts, God will turn us into gracious and merciful and justice-seeking people. And that would just be amazing. And so I, I kind of want to challenge us and, and, and toot our own horn a little bit. Um, we're doing some of this work, 24 Church, and it's awesome. And we need to keep doing it. When we have a big food truck I missed this last one because I got sick, and that's what I'm recovering from. But when we do a big food truck, we are administering justice and mercy to the poor and needy in our community. When we go out to some of the places where we— there's actually a few of us that go uh, to some other places during the big food truck and hand it out door to door, we're doing the work of justice. When we start the Hope Center that we're hoping to start very soon— to minister specifically to people struggling with drug and alcohol addiction, we are seeking to be people that show mercy and people involved in justice work. And I just wanna say to you, let's keep doing it. Let's be known as a church that just loves people. It's been radically changed by Jesus and shows grace and mercy and compassion and justice to those in the society that maybe no one else is paying attention to. Here's my other challenge. Some of you, a lot of you, me included, have been put in places of authority. You might be a politician. You might be a police officer, fireman, paramedic, school teacher, administrator, nurse, doctor, lawyer. I could keep going on. And in some of those positions, you have some specific authority authority and and help that you're able to offer. And when God, and I think God wants to fill our city, most of us are not called to be pastors. We're all called to minister. Most of us are not called to be pastors. So God's intentionally placing you in these vocations so that in those vocations, you can be a person of justice. You can treat everyone fairly. You can make sure it's not just the good old boy club, but you can make sure that everybody gets their fair shake. You don't take bribes. You don't play favorites. You seek to you seek to show equity. You seek to show mercy and justice. God throughout the scriptures has a a heart that seems to pour out especially for the poor and the needy, the destitute. And you can be a person like like with God's heart in those situations that does the very same thing. Says so God's put me here for a reason. I'm going to use that influence to be a person of justice and mercy. Let's pray, and then we're going to take communion together and celebrate the gospel. Father, I pray that this would land on us and that we would continue to think about what it means to be people of justice, what it means to be people who have your heart and who are looking out for those that are the sinned against, that are looking out to make wrongs right that want to represent your heart to the world, that want to be especially gracious to those that we meet who are maybe different than us because you've been especially gracious to us. Lord, would you do that work in our midst? Would you help us? We pray all these things in Jesus' name, amen.